Imagine this. Someone commits a murder, and then they confess. Seems like an easy enough case. Then they confess to another murder. And as the investigator, you're thinking, okay, this is getting interesting. But then they keep confessing. Almost every week is a different murder confession. And the person knows the details to the murder, details that aren't public. And they confess to hundreds and hundreds of murders. Are you dealing with one of the most complex serial killers ever? Or is there something more to the story? I'm your host, Coy, and this is the story of Henry Lee Lucas. Henry Lee Lucas was born on August 23, 1936, in a one-room log cabin in Blacksburg, Virginia. He wasn't born and then raised in a cabin. He was born in the cabin. When he was 10 years old, he got into a fight with his brother, as brothers tend to do. But this fight ended differently. He seriously injured his eye, and it later became infected, and he lost the eye. Henry's mom, Viola, made her money as a sex worker. But it didn't take long for a lot of lines to get crossed. In some instances, she would force Henry to watch her having sex with clients. She would also make him dress as a female when they were out in public, and eventually that would turn into her pimping him out to have sex with men or women. In December of 1949, when Henry was in sixth grade, his father Anderson was coming home drunk one night during a blizzard. He collapsed outside and ended up dying of hypothermia. Soon after his father's death, Henry dropped out of school and ran away from home. Ultimately, he was homeless and drifted around Virginia. When Henry was 18 years old in 1954, he was convicted of over a dozen burglaries around Richmond, Virginia, and he was sentenced to serve six years in prison. On September 14, 1957, Henry was working on a road crew in the prison. He was able to escape the group, and he fled to his sister's house in Michigan. I'm no expert in escaping from prison, in fact my only experience with prison escapes is from binge watching Prison Break, but I would venture to say that running to your sister's house might not be the best hideout, and it wasn't, because three months later he was arrested. A month later he attempted another prison escape, but was unsuccessful. But even with two prison escapes, Henry was released on September 2nd, 1959, a year early than when he was supposed to be released. While Henry was in prison, he met a woman who was a pen pal of his. As they wrote letters back and forth, they began a relationship. Well, I guess as much of a relationship as they were able to have, and they became engaged. When Henry was released from prison, he went back to Michigan to live with his sister, Opal. Now, I'm not sure if it's the same sister whose house he fled to when he escaped, but the odds are very high that it was that sister. For Christmas that year, Viola traveled to Michigan to visit Henry and Opal. Of course, being the very controlling mother that she was, she did not like Henry's fiancée, and she insisted that he move back to Virginia with her, 
so that he could take care of her as she grew older. But Henry had other plans, and he was tired of dealing with his over-controlling and abusive mother, so he refused to move back. This led to a lot of arguing between Viola and Henry over the holidays. I would think that if a family member from out of the state was visiting for the holidays, January 1st would probably be the latest they would stay, but Viola stayed a little bit longer, and the arguments just kept escalating. Then, on January 11th, 1960, the arguments went too far. As the mother and son yelled back and forth, Viola took a broom and hit Henry on the head with it. Henry then grabbed a knife and stabbed her in the neck. Viola fell to the floor immediately. Henry tried to pick her up, but she couldn't stand on her own. Henry believed that she was dead at the time, and he fled the house. Hours later, Opal returned home. As she walked in the door, she saw the grueling sight of her mother, barely alive, lying in a pool of her own blood. Opal called for an ambulance, but by the time that the ambulance arrived, it was too late, and Viola had died. Henry wasn't on the run for very long, and he was arrested in Michigan on the murder warrant. At the trial, Henry claimed that it was self-defense, but the jury wasn't buying that an elderly woman hitting him in the head with a broom was dangerous enough for him to stab her in the neck. Instead, it was believed that this was a lifetime of anger and frustration that built up inside him, and then he finally snapped. In 1960, Henry was sentenced to 40 years in prison for the murder. And one might think that would bring a conclusion to this story, but sadly enough, that was far from the case. Throughout the 1960s, crime across America skyrocketed and the prison system became overcrowded. By June of 1970, someone made the decision that due to overcrowding, Henry would be one of the ones released from prison. So after serving just 10 years of his 40-year sentence for murdering his mother, Henry was released. When Henry was released, he really didn't have anywhere to go. By this time, it seemed that his sister had dealt with him too much. I mean, there's only so much a person can deal with. He fled to her house when he escaped prison, and then he gets out and murders their mother in her house. And she comes home to find that. So he kind of became a drifter and went wherever he could. In 1971, Henry attempted to kidnap three young schoolgirls. He was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. While in prison, Henry began writing letters to a family friend who was a single mother with a young daughter. I'm sure you can guess where this is going. After writing each other back and forth for five years, they built a relationship. When Henry was released from prison again in 1975, they married each other. But the marriage didn't last long. Two years into the marriage, and the daughter went to her mother, saying that Henry had been sexually abusing her. From what I can tell, it doesn't look like this was ever reported to law enforcement, and Henry just moved out of the house. Henry then bounced around from family member to family member, and ended up in West Virginia. He started dating a woman there. Then there was another claim that he sexually abused another female in that family. Henry left West Virginia, and ended up settling down in Jacksonville, Florida. And that is where he became friends with a guy named Otis Toole. Now, Otis Toole may sound familiar to you. He was also a serial killer and is the one that was confirmed to be the one that killed Adam Walsh, the son of John Walsh. And John Walsh, as you may know, is most notably known for being the host of America's Most Wanted, which he began doing after his son was murdered. 
So around the early 1980s, Henry and Otis became friends, and he ended up living with Otis's parents. Otis had a 15-year-old niece named Frida Powell, but she went by Becky. Henry and Becky began a relationship, and I emphasize relationship as much as possible because Becky had a mild intellectual disability, she was 15 years old, and Henry was a 46-year-old guy. By 1982, Becky's mother and grandmother passed away. She ended up being put in a state shelter. Henry talked her into running away with him and living the life on the road. So once she snuck out of the shelter, the two of them took off. By 1982, Texas Ranger Bill Ryan received a call from the Montauk County Sheriff's Office, and I probably completely mispronounced that, but the sheriff was asking for assistance in a missing person case that the sheriff's office was investigating. The missing person was 82-year-old Kate Rich. She lived by herself at the time of her disappearance. Kate's family members immediately had a suspect in mind. Henry and Becky lived with Kate for a brief period of time when Henry took a job working for her around the house. But the family kicked them out when they found out Henry wasn't doing anything to help, and in fact he was writing checks out to himself from Kate's bank account. As Phil began his investigation into the disappearance, not only did he learn a lot about Henry's past, but he found out that Becky was a missing 15-year-old girl from Florida, and not an adult girlfriend of Henry's. Right away, Phil treated this investigation as a homicide, and not just the murder of Kate, but they believed that Becky would have been murdered too. Search parties were put together, and they did locate Kate's purse thrown over the bridge on the side of the road. Phil located Henry, and he came to the sheriff's office for an interview. When Henry first came in, they didn't have anything to detain him on, and as they were talking, Henry mentioned on his own that he had a warrant for his arrest out of Michigan for violating his probation. Phil did a little more searching and found the paperwork for the warrant, and Henry was arrested on that. Then, this is where Phil really took things to another level in this investigation. Henry loved to talk about anything. Phil sat and had conversations with him daily, building this relationship. He would bring him cigarettes and coffee and just talk, but Henry wouldn't come off of anything or confess to anything. Then Phil hit Henry where it hurt, with the silent treatment. Phil quit coming to visit Henry every day, and the guards at the jail were also instructed not to talk to Henry. After several days of not being able to talk to anyone, Henry wrote a note to one of the guards that read, I killed Kate. Phil then went to the jail and he spoke to Henry again. This time, Henry confessed to Phil that he killed Kate. He said that he stabbed her in the chest, then drug her body down to a ditch where he had sex with her deceased body. The next morning, he took Phil to the area. They found pieces of her clothing and her broken glasses, right in the area where Henry said they would be. Henry then took the rangers back to his old apartment and directed them to an outdoor stove. He said that was where he burned her body in the stove. Once the rangers looked inside, they did find what appeared to be bone fragments. Henry then agreed to take them to Becky's body. He led them to a field and pointed in different areas, saying that different parts of her body were buried in bags throughout the field. Henry said that he killed Becky by stabbing her after they had an argument and she hit him in the head. During the arraignment, for Kate's murder, there were a few local reporters there. The judge asked Henry if he understood the murder charge, 
and Henry responded, Well, what are we going to do about the other 100 women that I killed? And from there, the story of Henry Lee Lucas would never be the same. Alright, I promise this ad break won't be too long, and you can get right back to listening to this episode, but I just wanted to take a minute to let you all know that I have a Patreon now, and for just a few bucks a month, you can help support this show, get extra episodes, and a few other perks with more on the way, and I just really greatly appreciate all the support, whether it's Patreon, leaving ratings, reviews, liking the Instagram, Facebook page or just listening to this. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you all so much. And I don't think that was too long of an ad. Back to the episode. Reporters broke the news locally of Lucas claiming to have killed 100 women. News stations began picking up the story, and in a time where social media wasn't around, the story spread across the U.S. like a wildfire. Law enforcement agencies from all over the country began calling the Texas Rangers, specifically wanting to talk to Phil Ryan, trying to see if Henry could be a suspect in any of their unsolved murders. Phil gave Henry a notebook and a pencil and pretty much just told him to write down whatever he could. Henry then started drawing sketches from what he could remember of the victims, from their facial features down to the clothes that they were wearing and the time of the murder. After coordinating this, it kind of brought Phil's involvement with Henry to an end. One of the sheriffs that Phil was in contact with was Jim Boutwell, who was in Georgetown, Texas. Jim was a bit of a local legend around the area. In 1966, Charles Whitman went to the top of a building at the University of Texas in Austin, and he began shooting at people as they walked by on the streets. Over the course of a terrorizing 96 minutes, Charles killed 15 people and injured 31. Jim Batwell responded to the area. He jumped in his own plane and flew around the university. Jim was the one that located the building which the shooter was at. While he was up flying around, he was shot at several times and bullets struck his plane, but he was able to land safely. So Jim was well-known and loved by a lot of people. In 1983, Henry was sentenced to a life in prison for the murder of Kate and Becky. Jim had been investigating several murders in the area of Georgetown, in which he believed was the work of one killer. After Henry was sentenced, he obtained a warrant for Henry and had him extradited to Williamson County Jail. Jim then went to the Texas Department of Public Safety and arranged to form the Lucas Task Force and their primary goal was to coordinate allowing investigators from all over the nation to come and interview Henry. Through interviews with Henry, they really began learning a lot about what made him who he was. They learned that when Henry was a kid, his mother struck him in the head with a board so hard that he was knocked unconscious for over 24 hours, which, looking back at things now, that may have been a big trigger to him when his mother hit him in the head with a broomstick. The task force also learned that his mother would buy him pet animals just to turn around and kill them right in front of him. After doing some medical scans on Henry's brain, the doctors revealed that Henry had temporal lobe damage and frontal lobe damage. According to medical professionals, the damage to his brain was caused when he was between 5 and 10 years old. 
That's also a very bad combination of brain damage to have because the temporal lobe meant that he didn't have any control over impulses, and the frontal lobe damage meant that he had a lack of empathy and compassion. So someone with trauma, no empathy, compassion, and a lack of self-control? This was literally the making of a serial killer. If Phil built a rapport with Henry when he began investigating, then Sheriff Batwell took everything to a new level. While Henry was in Georgetown, it was more like he was staying at just a bad hotel. He didn't spend a lot of time in a jail cell. He was allowed to walk around anywhere in the office, and usually without being handcuffed and sometimes even unsupervised. He was allowed to be around knives while someone was cooking or scissors while he was getting a haircut. He walked around the office, got sodas, he was brought food from outside. Even when he was transported to potential crime scenes to walk investigators through what happened, in a lot of cases, he was unhandcuffed. Over several years of investigations, the Lucas Task Force ended up assisting agencies around the country in closing approximately 213 murders, which were contributed to Henry. When investigative journalist Hugh Ainsworth learned about Henry, which was towards the beginning of when he was sent to Georgetown, Hugh just had to meet with him. Hugh had spent the last four years interviewing Ted Bundy and writing the book, The Only Living Witness, which he wrote with Bundy. But Hugh wouldn't be the decorated investigative journalist that he was without doing investigative things. He brought in a film crew from Japan to record his interviews with Henry. I'm not sure if there was a specific reason for why he brought the crew from Japan, if it was friends that he'd worked with before or what, but it opened some doors. In one of the interviews, Henry turned to the film crew and he mentioned, ever so casually, that he also had bodies buried in Japan and that he murdered people there too. When asked how he got all the way to Japan from America, he simply said that he drove there. Then everything started going downhill fast. One of the murders that Henry confessed to was that of Michelle Boucher. At the time that investigators questioned Henry, her identity was unknown. They simply showed him a picture of her, and he said that she was one of his victims. Henry gave the investigators a detailed account of how the murder happened, but his story wasn't lining up with the evidence that they had. Then this started happening in several other cases. It was an unidentified murder victim from California. Henry saw the photo, gave details on the murder, but it wasn't consistent with what really happened. Then the same thing happened with an unsolved murder in New York. Henry went from being able to walk investigators through crime scenes, telling them details to all of these murders, to now claiming that he murdered someone but giving the wrong details. Then an allegation came out against the Lucas Task Force. It was believed that the task force would get copies of the murder investigations and then they would go over the evidence with Henry before filming his confessions. In 1985, Hugh published what was called the Lucas Report, where he mapped out a timeline of a lot of the murders that Henry confessed to. One of these timelines showed the period of one month, and it showed that Henry would have driven 11,000 miles on his 13-year-old station wagon that month in order to commit the murders that was closed out with him as the suspect. In the episode I covered with Deborah Jackson, Henry confessed to that murder as well, but they were able to later prove that he was in Florida at the time of her murder. 
At this time, it was very clear and now public knowledge that Henry could not have committed all of these murders. The Texas Attorney General, Jim Maddox, made a statement saying, when Lucas was confessing to hundreds of murders, those with custody of Lucas did nothing to bring an end to this hoax. And we have found information that would lead us to believe that some officials cleared cases just to get them off the books. I think this part is the most hurtful to families of these victims because they thought the killer was found, but it was all a hoax. A lot of these cases would go on to take years and years to be truly solved, and some remained unsolved today. Henry was interviewed in over 3,000 murder cases. 213 of those were cleared with him as the suspect. The ones that were not even questionable that he did was the murder of his mom, Kate, and Becky. And later on, a criminologist estimated that Henry did commit about 40 of the 213 murders. And some of those were also corroborated by Otis, who claimed that he and Henry killed a few people together. Years later, DNA evidence would prove that Henry was not the killer in at least 20 of the cases that he confessed to. So this is a hard spot to be in because by all accounts, Henry does seem to be a serial killer and several murders have been proven. It's just not the hundreds of murders that swept the headlines that brought in hundreds of investigators. On March 12, 2001, Henry was found dead in his prison cell. His cause of death was later ruled as congestive heart failure. He was 64 years old at the time that he died. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. If you can, please leave a rating or review. Helps this show out a lot. You can follow on Instagram or Facebook at Crime Nerds Podcast. And thank you for listening.